Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast today on the pod. On the eve of BC's experiment with drug decriminalization, we look at the potential impact of the new legislation. Plus, to patio or not, is there still a debate on whether patio should remain in Vancouver? Plus, got the munchies? We introduce you to Vancouver's Secret Snack Society. That's all next on the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Let's focus on our story of the day. Today, as many of you have heard, the B.C. government talked about its three-year trial for drug decriminalization. Essentially, as we heard in the news, what it means is that starting tomorrow, adults with up to two and a half grams of drugs for personal use, including opioids, cocaine, MDMA, will not be arrested or charged. Uh, The government said that is to reduce um, the shame and stigma surrounding drug use. Uh, And while the province says it wants to keep people from getting getting help. Now, today, the federal and provincial government held a joint press conference to talk about um, the change uh, of law tomorrow. They went out of their way to say that this is not drug legalization. Here is federal mental health minister, Carolyn Bennett. All activities with illegal drugs, including production, trafficking, import, and export, remain illegal. We will work closely to evaluate and monitor its implementation to ensure that this exemption continues to meet public health and public safety objectives. Now, it's important to note, in the last seven years, seven years, toxic drugs have killed almost 11,000 people here in British Columbia. It's an issue uh, that Jennifer Whiteside, the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, has brought up many times. And she said part of what they're doing today is trying to show compassion to individuals. Take a listen. People found in possession of a small amount of certain illegal drugs for personal use will not face criminal charges, fines, or have their drugs confiscated. Instead, they will be offered information about health and social supports, local treatment, and recovery services. Instead of being treated as criminals, they will be treated with care and compassion. You know this is a big announcement when uh, the federal and provincial minister hold a press conference together today uh, before uh, things change tomorrow. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about uh, tomorrow is Jessica Cooksey. She's the Director of Operations at the Last Door Recovery Society here in Vancouver. Jessica, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. First of all, your thoughts on what is transpiring tomorrow. Uh, are you uh, supportive of it, or, or are there any concerns on your, uh, on your, on your mind? I am 100% supportive of anything that reduces people's um, exposure, interactions with police in regards to their substance use. Mm-hmm. I do have some concerns outside of the actual dis- decriminalization policy changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to speaking to addicts uh, at uh, your recovery society, uh, have they talked about this type, this, this change, and, and whether or not they think it's the right way to go? Because they understand addiction, they know addiction, they've been around those who are addicted, dealing with substance abuse uh, issues. What have you been hearing from them? Um, I, I've been hearing things in the public, and I've been hearing things from my friends, colleagues, family members, and people's relationship with substances. And um, this this lands on everyone. There's substance use in every community. So there, I guess the question from, from our stakeholders is what resources and, and what accessibility and what's the plan for access to resources for, for the public, say, 
mm-hmm. positions, housing, employment, supports for education, all of those. We're already talking about, like, how can we increase access to those? Um, you know, and, and this isn't, this isn't, this decrim is going to um, have um, results not only in people who qualify for the criteria of a substance use disorder, but those recreational users who have experienced having um, criminal records for personal possession in the past and in the future, and that will decrease barriers for people to reach out for help. Oh, so you think we need to go even further in regards to people's records? Well, I think that this decriminalization for for personal use will will hopefully make the, the the criminal records for for personal possession in the future extinct. So that if they're not having interactions with police, if they're not getting charged, then they do have the ability, or they do they're more likely to reach out for help. What that help looks like and how accessible that help is, we have work to do collectively mm-hmm. in this province and in this, in, in this country, to you, speak candidly. Now, before we get to some of the other things you'd like to see, because I think that's part of the conversation, a very important part of it, the reality is the, the Vancouver police haven't been arresting people uh, when they have hard drugs on them, a small, a small personal use, uh, and that's been no, stated. No, I, I, I have heard that, and I commend them for um, being ahead of the curve and start actioning what um, people who have been advocating for this for year over year over year, day after day, and that they have taken action to, to stop arresting people for personal possession. I don't know if that's across the board, but if it is happening, I commend that action, and I hope that um, the the frontline workers are, are, are continuing the hard work of, of linking people up with life-saving measures. But does will that does mm-hmm. that if the police have sure. already said they're not doing that? Does that also tell you though that simply decriminalization won't work because we have we continue to see deaths as I said almost eleven thousand in in seven years here in British Columbia. One could also point out that if if this is continuing, the police haven't been arresting people who have small amount of drugs on them. It also says that we need to be doing more in regards to what you've already said, which is actually spending more money on health, access to education, housing. Doesn't that point to perhaps those types of services rather than less about decriminalization? Well, decriminalization is a piece of that. There are Mm -hmm. so many pieces of the matrix of recovery-oriented systems of care that are necessary to ensure all of our wellness even people without a relationship with substances who are trying to access health care, housing, education, employment. We know that there are challenges for every, every citizen in British Columbia. So there are key pieces that need, there needs to continue to be work on those key pieces. So, so pointing, pointing the finger at decriminalization mm-hmm. or treatment beds or medications, it's not going to be the silver bird. It all needs to be all hands on deck on this one. Uh, I had Pierre Polyev on the show last week, the Conservative Party leader, and he wasn't too happy with what British Columbia is going on this issue. He said they should be looking at Alberta, which has been focusing on more treatment, better focus on access to education better access to housing. That, that's the way to go. And, of course, more treatment beds, all those things that you're talking about. But the specific issue of decriminalization, he says, that's not, that's not the direction we should be going into. We should be looking at those other issues that you're talking about. What do you say to that argument? Um, I, I'm encouraging all governments, all policy level, continue to action the, the evidence 
and the research about recovery-oriented systems of care. Mm-hmm. Recovery-oriented systems of care is inclusive of harm reduction services, is inclusive of housing, education, connection to self and others. So um, if we're going to roll out recovery-oriented systems of care, we need to be doing that 100% of the time. We can look to other countries. We can look to our, our colleagues and our friends in, in, in south of the border who have been operationalizing recovery-oriented systems of care for quite some time. Um, the month of September could be, you know, an awareness month. There's a lot of actions and, and entry points that we could utilize. I'll save, I'll save the political platforms to the politicians. As yeah. They are more well-versed on that. All I can speak to is my experience from a bed-based treatment operator. Do you like what they're doing in Alberta? So far, it looks really promising. Yeah. Um, I, anything, anything that increases access to life-saving services it, it is meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. I've worked in, in the addiction recovery field for two and a half decades, and I've met the most incredible people who go on to live purpose-driven lives, who become citizens, who help others day in, day out. So anything to help people near and dear to my heart, I'm, I'm all for. Mm-hmm. Now, you have some phone numbers you wanted to, to uh, uh, let our listeners know about in regards to if those that did, did want help. What were the numbers that you wanted to provide? Yes, and it's not, a, it's not a foolproof system, but first and foremost, anyone in the public can call 811 and speak with a health service navigator, and they can help link you up with a start of accessing services, or there's a 1-800 number for substance use and mental health services, which is 1-800-663-1441. And I want to thank you for holding space so that we could actually talk about um, where to get help as well. I really appreciate that. It's really ethical of you. And I have the number, and I will mention it again in our next segment uh, as well. Uh, Jessica, uh, thank you so much for your time today, and I look forward to having you on the show again because this is not an issue that goes away in a day or two. We we have to continue to talk about uh, about, uh, the challenges that are there for, for many British Columbians. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Well, let's talk uh, about Toronto just for a moment. Uh, They're going through a bit of a crime wave, a bit of a challenge, similar to uh, many North American cities. There's challenges over violence, um, you know, just some homelessness issues as well. um, And the city has been asking a lot of questions, as has its citizens. And to the point where uh, many citizens taking taxis have asked taxi drivers uh, to head to a particular part of town, uh, and it may be a little rough, Uh, And taxi drivers, uh, in some cases, are now asking for cash advance payment. Now, some in Toronto have been asking, is this legal? Well, it turns out uh, in that city, yes, you um, can ask for a deposit in advance of up to $25. That got me asking, can you do that here um, in uh, in Vancouver? Joining me now is Gudeep Sohota. He's a general manager of Sunshine Cabs in North Vancouver. Gudeep, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you, Jeff. So uh, when I hear this Toronto story, and, and it's it's separate to to Vancouver, of course, but uh, I've often wondered, uh, you know, when uh, cabbies pick up uh, a fare, uh, you know, I've heard many times where people just get dropped off and then run off and not pay. Uh, it, it, can a cab driver ask for an advance payment? Jazz, it's, uh, it's a very topical issue. Actually, I was looking it up uh, before coming on this show, and on 30th January 2008, 15 years ago today, the then uh, Honourable, uh, the Minister of Transportation, on the Honourable Kevin Falcon, oh. announced the, uh, the BC Taxi Bill of Rights, which uh, was brought in to promote consistent and high level of taxi service in Metro Vancouver. And it lays out uh, 
you know, what the passengers uh, can expect from drivers and, uh, you know, rights and responsibilities and obligations of a driver and, and passengers. Uh, the Taxi Bill of Rights uh, is a uh, takes the form of a decal which has certain points which must be f- uh, put on uh, the rear window of every taxi in Metro Vancouver so that customers are aware of what their rights are as a passenger and what the obligations for a taxi driver are. And it also, in order to protect uh, the safety of taxi drivers, it allows drivers to take certain types of actions uh, under certain circumstances. And one of them is that they can ask for a deposit um, from a passenger if they feel that, uh, you know, they could be troubled down the road. Typically, it's a deposit is asked for for usually longer trips, but uh, it is it is something that tax drivers are able to do here in British Columbia. Is there a certain percentage of a, of a fare or a potential fare that, that they can charge, or is it just an arbitrary number that they can come up and uh, come up with in conjunction with uh, with the uh, customer? Well, usually it's something that'll more or less cover the anticipated fare. So, for example, if uh, you know I were to pick up somebody. In North Vancouver, and they're going out of Abbotsford, so you know it's probably going to be almost hundred bucks. So I, I could ask for an amount close to that to cover the fare in case uh, a passenger uh, decides not to pay me, or they they cannot pay me when I uh, you know go drop them off and. Actually, it has happened to me myself. I'm, I'm quite surprised when I was driving. You were. I'm, I'm surprised. At, why do I mean? Maybe it's just my experience. But do is it still rare though for taxi drivers to ask for an advance uh, advance payment? Because, uh, and I, I always hear stories about people, you know, being driven somewhere and then the customer runs off without having to pay, or police police have to be called. And you say it's happened to you. I'm just surprised taxi drivers don't ask for for advance pay more often. Well, they have the, the ability to do so. Um, you, these days, uh, a lot of, for example, everybody pays using plastic and drivers on a daily basis for, uh, you know, certain type of transactions will get a pre-authorization. Uh, so they know that the customer has the ability to pay or can cover a certain amount. But uh, for longer trips, you know, a lot of drivers will ask for a deposit. So it happens on a regular basis. Okay, because I'm sure, as you were saying, you've gone through situations where you've had to drive somebody and they've just run off and not paid. Happened to me. $100. And where out, were you, the out the window. Out the window. Where were you going from? What was the trip? Uh, I had picked up, I was driving a black top at that time and uh, drove a, a gentleman in a suit all the way up to Abbotsford and he took off on me. <laughs> happened to me <laughs> and and, you, and did you call did you call the police i'm just curious as to how you deal with that well, i spoke to my dispatcher and we figured out that by the time the police got there and i had to you know give them the report he obviously you know he ran into an apartment building so i couldn't trace him mm. and i sort of figured out that it was better to come back because i had to give uh, the vehicle to my day driver who was uh, starting to shift at 4 a.m can a taxi driver turn down um, a fare if he or she believes it's 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 a bit of a rough part of town? Well, they can. So the taxi bill of right uh, does allow a taxi driver to uh, refuse a fare. Uh, you know, taxi drivers, like a lot of people in certain occupations, have a sixth sense. So sometimes you just know it in your gut that, uh, you know, this, this party could be trouble. So uh, if you uh, have a well-founded fear, for your safety, you can refuse uh, to take a passenger.
and so, that is allowed. And you're allowed to do that, and that and that's subjective Absolutely. at the at the end of the day. Yes, it is. Uh, and before we go, we got about a minute left, and it's uh, and we'll have you on again. But I just, I'm curious, uh, the impact of ride hailing so far, and we'll do a longer segment on this another day. But yes. how is the the, the industry faring uh, overall with ride hailing? Well, you know, ride hailing obviously had a, a devastating impact on our industry, but uh, it was followed by the pandemic, and it was a one-two punch. And I've used that phrase over the years since our company initially shut down in uh, March of 2020 of the North Shore, and, uh, you know, both uh, ride hailing and the pandemic have had a major impact. We're recovering, but right now our biggest challenge, for example, Jazz, is uh, lack of vehicles and drivers. We can't find vehicles to put on our fleets, and uh, we've lost a lot of drivers to ride hailing and other occupations. So those are the two huge challenges facing the taxi industry. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll have you on uh, soon on that other one, be on that other segment with yeah, ride healing, because that's that. a bigger, broader question. But I appreciate you joining us today to talk a little bit about um, what taxi drivers can or cannot do here in Vancouver, because it does appear to be a growing issue in Toronto, that is for sure. Gradeep, thank you for your uh, time today. Thank you, Jazz. Appreciate it. Well, at the height of COVID, we couldn't uh, sit indoors. You recall that? And what happened? Well, uh, patios opened up in this city. Uh, In fact, uh, in many ways, that uh, uh, decision by our provincial health officer was able to get us past uh, decades and decades of conversation in and around patios. Um, We debated it. We didn't know whether or not we'd move forward with it. And of course, now uh, we love our patios and we don't want to change. Well, the city of Vancouver must decide if its expanded patio spaces should become a permanent fixture on private properties. That's what's coming up uh, at City Hall this month. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, Vancouver City's patio program and where it's headed is Ian Tostenson. He's the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thanks to thanks for speaking to us today. It's a pleasure, Jazz. How you doing? I'm doing very well. A bit uh, I know, cold today, a little chilly, but clear skies, uh, which reminds you patio season isn't too far away. Your thoughts, first and foremost. I mean, this is going to go through. I I, I can't see City Hall, uh, anybody at City Hall saying, no, it was a nice experiment. We're turning back the clock. Exactly. So if you go back to 2020, um, and I believe March 2020, when the whole pandemic thing happened, that summer, that spring, Dr. Henry said, we got to be outside. And so, you know, we wrote a letter to every municipality and said, you know, make do as fast you can patio approvals, which everybody did. And then, you know, I think that the public at large said, this is great. Like, we've got more patios than we ever have. And that continued on to through to 2021. And then um, to a certain degree, 2022, the government started to formalize it a bit more. But what we're looking at in Vancouver is um, these patio extensions sort of going back to 2020 and on March 31st, 2023. doesn't mean there's not going to be any patios. But what it means is that Vancouver is inviting patios that were existing patios to become permanent. And um, there's a little bit of a process to do that. But if you think of it from a business owner's point of view, you've got this investment in a patio and you've got your patio set up and now it potentially becomes permanent and your, your costs going forward for the, you know, the several years ahead are a lot less. The certainty as a business is a lot more and you can develop a culture within that patio is what 
you know, we're starting to see that people are going to their favorite patios and going, yeah, I got to go to Jazz's restaurant there. I love that patio because they know it. it's there. It's there year round. So this is nothing but, I think, an opportunity for Vancouver. Now, in the midst of that conversation, I recall uh, during uh, COVID, there were, correct me if I'm wrong, some permit fees that um, uh, escalated or there was concern over those. Uh, there was also talk about the, the, the regulations being a tad onerous in regards to yeah. what you could build, how, uh, you know, the, the size and all that kind of stuff. Has that all been nailed down? Or are we still in the process of still having that conversation in regards to fees for a patio, but also what a patio looks like? No, I think it's changed now in Vancouver uh, and Victoria is the same way, by the way. We have a new council. Uh, there's a new sheriff in town. The mayor is so, in, you know, so wanting to have permanent patios, uh, making it business friendly. So that last year, um, and I know you and I talked about this, Jazz, mm-hmm. the city of Vancouver then came out with a 30-page document, and it was all about how to put a patio in, and you, you needed to have architectural diagrams, and by the time you rule this up, it's going to be about $5,000 and people, but what? And that was a six-month sort of study they did. So this year, we're much more involved in the design of it. Um, we've said to the city and the mayor and the new council that we need to really be conscious of red tape and regulation uh, for no other reason, frankly, than there's the labor challenges that we have and the ability for a business owner to, to navigate complex, unnecessary systems Number two needs to be, you know, some acknowledgement that if, you, if these people had a patio last year, maybe the year before, and they were good corporate citizens, you know, to sort of give them a nod a bit sooner than later. And number three, of course, as you mentioned, is the cost. You know, $5,000 is too much. Um, the, the, the application right now is $230. Um, there'll be a few more fees by, be it by, beyond that. But it looks like this council certainly recognizes that the 700 or so patios in Vancouver, they need to approach this with a common sense approach. We're not out of the pandemic. They understand, you know, talking to Sarah Kirby Young yesterday, they certainly understand the the brittleness, financial brittleness of the industry that continues now. So I, I think we're in pretty good shape in Vancouver. Uh, if I owned a restaurant... Uh, with 50 seats indoors, how big of a patio could I build? That's a good question. I think I think you can do the regulation that I'm aware of is up to half of your approved seating inside. So it means that you could add another 25 seats, which is significant. Uh, the problem a little bit is that um, not all those restaurants have the space up front. So the one thing that we have to be very conscious of is accessibility, making sure we don't become, uh, you know, blocking pedestrians, blocking, you know, forcing them to go out in the street to walk around. Um, but that's just good citizenship on our parts. And I don't think you're going to see too many restaurant owners uh, or people that want to put a patio in because it does go beyond restaurants. Mm-hmm. that are going to go, you know, we're going to put something away here. We have to be very conscious of the, you know, uh, uh, of that, that part of society that needs to be mobile and get around. So I'm not too concerned about that. So, but it's about, it's, it, it generally is 50, 50% of your indoor light or your indoor approved seating. Uh, so, so in my case, let's say my restaurant had 50 seats indoors, that, those 50 seats obviously 
would be full, but I also have now potentially 25 more seats outside. And on a busy summer yeah. day, uh, I've have significant more capacity. Exactly. But what happens generally is that um, you don't sort of say in this case, seven, that's a total of 75 seats. Most of the seats will be outside. Very few people, especially if it's a nice day, are going to be inside. And so it's not like you suddenly are, you know, if you've got a site that's 75 people, you're still always going to have, you know, a capacity that's going to be, you know, probably closer to 50, 50 people anyways, because some will be inside, the majority will be outside. Yeah. Final question. Do you, why did it take a global pandemic to get us here? I mean, I, I was I was watching a show on Netflix a few oh. weeks ago. Uh, it's it's one of those. It's really it's an easy watch. It's called Emily in Paris. It's just an American who lives in Paris, and I sort of swear half that show um, is just scenes from uh, cafes, outdoor cafes in Paris. It looks lovely. It's wonderful. But you know, Vancouver is a beautiful city. Why did it take a global pandemic for us to get to this point? I, I'm just it, it still boggles the mind. Uh, I can be a little cautious when I say this, but I think, you know, in the past, the bureaucracy uh, has have looked at these things through a, a glass of this is going to cause trouble, this is going to cause inaccessibility, this is fire hazard, this is all these different negative things. And, and I, you know, if you go down that road, you're going to say, you know what, we probably shouldn't have very many patios. If you look at Lawnsdale in North Vancouver, you know, half of Lawnsdale now are patios that have built in parking spots, and it's charming. So it's really a mindset and, and trusting business, as I said earlier, to do the right thing. So I think that we saw a little bit of the development jazz during the 2010 Olympics where people are outside in January going, what, patios are cool. And then, but it is kind of odd that it took the pandemic to see this expansion like this, but it is what it is. And I'm, and I'm kind of glad that it happened. But before that, we struggled. We struggled with trying to get a patio culture Many mayors in Vancouver have said, yes, we want to create a patio culture, but it got sort of, it got sort of the oxygen got taken out of the room by the bureaucracy. So I think that though that this mayor and this council will send the right, you know, let's be cautious. Let's do the right thing. Let's make sure we take care of things, but let's get patios out there. They're great for the culture of, of the city. Well, in politics, it's often said a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And I guess in the case of the pandemic, we, we've got patio culture, evolving pa- patio culture, which is great to see. Uh, Ian, thanks for exactly. your time today, my friend. Thanks, Jazz. We'll see you in the patio soon when it gets a bit warmer. Hey, you can guarantee <laughs> that. Thanks a lot. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. We were mentioning the B.C. government uh, today talked about its three-year trial for drug decriminalization. Essentially, tomorrow, adults with up to two and a half grams of drugs for personal use, which includes uh, cocaine, opioids, uh, MDMA, uh, will not be arrested or charged. Uh, The goal, of course, is to reduce uh, shame and stigma, uh, according to the experts. Uh, Here's a provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who joined our provincial and federal minister today, or Ministers of Mental Health and Addiction, and she talked about that criminalization does not decrease the use of illegal drugs. Take a listen. We know that criminalizing people who use drugs causes harms and does not, as we are absolutely sure, decrease the use of illegal drugs, and we've seen that the impact of that across uh, this province in particular with the toxic drug deaths that have continued unabated and worsened over the period of this pandemic. 
Dr. Henry is certainly right about the amount of people who have died uh, due to toxic drugs. Almost 11,000 people uh, have died uh, since 2016 here in British Columbia, and it still remains an epidemic in our province. Uh, People struggle with this in regards to the issue of decriminalizing hard drugs, even a small amount for personal use. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is John Daly. He's a former uh, Global News investigative journalist. He has certainly covered police and the drug industry uh, in this city for, well, decades. Uh, He joins us now. John, thank you for speaking to us today. It's a real pleasure, Jazz. So, you know, uh, I'm like most people trying to understand what decriminalization uh, means. And, you know, the, the federal and provincial minister said, look, it's not legalization. And I, and I get that. Your thoughts, I mean, you've been covering a lot of these stories for decades in this city. Uh, do you think this is a step in the right direction? I think this is awful. It's a really bad idea, Jazz. The decriminalization of, uh, you know, 2.5 grams of heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, MDMA, etc., is discriminatory. Poor drug users need quantity discounts, way more than two and a half grams. They're already cavailing and protesting at the limit. Same as rural drug users who have to travel dozens of kilometers, maybe even 100 kilometers to score. They're being discriminated against, forced to make repeated trips to get their drugs, and it's bad for the environment. So, 2.5 grams of fentanyl is supposed to be 100 times the strength of 2.5 grams of heroin, Jazz. So having the same weight limit for heroin and fentanyl is clearly discriminatory for heroin users. They should be allowed 250 grams. <laughs> John, John, I mean, I mean, look, we've we've talked no. about the issue of we need more uh, more uh, facilities to, to to help people who are uh, hooked on drugs. We need uh, access to housing. Some have said the Alberta model, which focuses more on more treatment beds, uh, more uh, greater access to housing is where we need to be going, not decriminalizing um, hard drugs like here in BC. What do you think of that plan? Absolutely. I mean, I was being apocryphal. Obviously, I don't support this legalization. It's just crazy. This is nuts. Where are the hard metrics? How many people in Vancouver have been charged for possession of two and a half grams or less of hard drugs? How many people in RCMP jurisdictions like Nanaimo, Prince George, Kelowna? There's no evidence that they're putting forward to say that these people have felt criminalized, ostracized, and were less likely to seek treatment. How many of those 11,000 people who died of drug overdoses or alleged drug overdoses from illegal drugs actually would have sought treatment if they were allowed to contain carry two and a half grams or less of hard drugs. There's no evidence to this. This is just a smokescreen to try and say, guess what, we're doing something. But in fact, nobody's getting prosecuted for this. Only a handful of people are getting prosecuted for these weights. And the weights are really all over the place because it doesn't make any sense. Fentanyl and, and heroin, the same weight. That's insane. It's window dressing. Decriminalization simply encourages young people to experiment without the fear of getting a criminal record. That's what this is really about. Now, I would agree with you in the sense that, look, we've, we've actually, we're talking about tomorrow being a, a historic day. But in many cases, I think uh, the Deputy Chief uh, Wilson was on the show last year, and she said we probably uh, perhaps picked up two people in Vancouver in the last year or two. Uh, it's already been going on, this experiment. The people, have, Police have not been arresting sure. people at the end of the day, yeah. and people have still been dying. So I think you do make a point, but uh, look, we've tried everything else. Why not this? That's my point. Well... I mean, it's, it's, it's basic. It's not that we're, we're already trying it. So really what this is is just a massive P- 
PR campaign and smokescreen to give the impression that somehow we care more, we're trying to do more, but in fact, they're doing nothing. They really need to focus on treatment and education. And that's not happening. So where's the hes- why are we hesitating from, from doing that? And some would argue politically that's the easier thing to do rather than doing what they're doing now. What do you think is leading us in that direction towards this decriminalization rather than, as you say, more treatment? What is, well, is it a philosophical thing? What's causing this then? Well, I think it is philosophical. I think we're losing taboos on all sorts of things. We're losing taboos on uh, drugs. We're losing taboos on gambling. You know, Super Bowl's coming up. You're swamped with uh, ads for gambling. Are we going to have more people gambling in the future? Oh, yeah. More people in trouble from gambling? Sure we are. Are we going to have more people in trouble for, for getting hooked on drugs? Probably. Uh, you know, the bottom line is fighting hard drugs is a hard battle. It's, 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 uh, it's, you know, we know that people go into to, uh, treatment, they go into recovery programs, and it takes them five, seven, maybe ten times to be successful. Some of them are successful. Some of them are never successful. But it's a hell of a lot better than being, uh, you know, stoned and broke and, uh, you know, resorting to crime all the time. So, you know, what are what are our choices? I mean, we need much more uh, drug education so people can see where they're likely to end up. How addictive is is MDMA or how addictive is cocaine? How addictive is uh, fentanyl? Um, you know, and whether or not you, as a say a teenager, mm-hmm. is, are able to withstand these drugs and to come out the other side of uh, an experimentation process uh, and not be hooked, I don't know. You know, I mean, like I think we need the data on that. That's what should be being taught in high schools and so forth. Uh, not being, not you know, having discussions about. Hey, guess what? You know, if you were eighteen, it's too bad you're being age discriminated against because if you were eighteen, you could carry around two and a half grams of coke in your pocket, and nobody could say boo unless you walked into a bar or passed a, a daycare. Yeah. A final question to you. I'm going to have Vancouver Police on tomorrow on this issue. But what do you think's changed within the police fraternity that uh, they've been supportive, certainly openly, uh, and at the press conference today, even and they've talked about that they're supportive of this issue. What do you think is change within the police discourse that is ha- that has them out saying we support this as well well the war on drugs is lost i mean that's what's changed and i think most cops have realized that the bottom line is for for a lot of drug users uh it is a health problem they are addicted and it's not going to be easy for them to either you know wean off onto methadone or something else so it's it's a tough slog and putting somebody in jail is probably not going to co- their uh, their drug addiction because the pigeon will bring them their drugs. Yeah. John, thank you for your time today, my friend. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jazz. Anytime. Have you ever been out late at night and you got the munchies? And too often for many uh, Vancouverites, uh, there's not much open. Uh, generally, it's a fast food outlet. Well, one Vancouver restaurateur wants to change all that. Rahul Kumar is owner of the Secret Snack Society. Yes, a new society that actually uh, will be offering late-night snacks uh, uh, come this Friday for the first time. He is a immigrant from India. He owns the Karma Indian Bistro in Kitsilano, but he felt, you know what? A lot of students are out late at night, people going to nightclubs, and just uh, our nightlife as well. So he said, let's do what we do in India. We're going to have food available late at night and it's going to be interesting it's going to be scrumptious it's going to be awesome and he joins us now because he has launched as i said the secret snack society rahul thank you for joining us today uh thank you jess it's great to be here uh so walk me through this uh when does your not so secret secret snack society begin 
Uh, so, Soulful Secret Snack Society, we will be starting it uh, this week on Friday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, we came up with a concept um, pretty recently, um, just like, you know, a few weeks ago, like uh, like almost like a starting of December last year. We wanted to do this because we just wanted to provide like some, uh, you know, really great um, Indian dishes, Indian street style snack food to Vancouver, basically. Uh, so how would this work? Now, I understand you have a restaurant already, uh, an Indian restaurant, um, and this would work, come out of that kitchen, but it's only for the sort of early morning, late night snacks? Yeah, absolutely. So for us, um, so we have a regular, uh, we have a, a already running restaurant. And, uh, you know, um, so after we sh- uh, close the service for the restaurant, we will open Secret Snack Society from the same kitchen, but we will just keep it to uh, just to to go and delivery. So anyone anyone in downtown area, UBC area, Kitsilano, will be able to go on our website or go or will be able to go on Uber Eats, Skip the Dishes, or any major delivery platform, and they can find us there and they can play, place their orders online, and then it will be just directly delivered to them, basically. And so the, the Snack Society is sort of for those who are uh, for late nights, uh, early mornings, when sometimes people have a tendency to go to fast food outlets, uh, this is to provide uh, sort of Indian snacks uh, to folks in and around, as you say, UBC, downtown, uh, Kitsilano, that area. Uh, why this concept in your mind? What makes you think this could work? I think for us, like, to be honest, um, when we look uh, on, like, so for myself, I usually, um, you know, go out and eat pretty late, right? So when I look for the options, like, let's say after midnight or after 10 p.m., there's only, like, you know, a couple places available, like McDonald's or Tim Hortons or not a lot of places available, and especially, like, uh, you know, the area we want to cater to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of options in the night. So what we want to do is, like, we were like, hey, um, I think we can, you know, uh, provide some great food and late-night service for the students, uh, you know, late-night food for anyone basically looking for a snack. And they don't want to have it because like, you, you don't want to have, like, a burger every day. You don't want to have a, you know, bagel in the middle of the night sometime. You want something else. So we have, like, some really great, like, appetizer, like, pakoras. We have them. We have some wraps and stuff. So um, so that's the that's whole, you know, Thing for us, it, it, so this is mostly Indian street food, uh, Indian snacks that you're going to be selling. Is yeah. there much of that? I know in any restaurant you can find some of this stuff, but in regards to delivery, in regards to the Indian Indian sort of um, restaurant scene here, how rare is it what you're trying to offer in regards to sort of Indian nightlife fare, snacks, th- that type of thing? Yeah, for for us, um, you know, um, we do have like some of the options which are available like in other restaurants too. But we do have like some of the really uh, great, you know, our rolls and stuff. So we have like some paneer rolls. You cannot find them in Vancouver, or you know. Uh, so we also have tandoori chicken rolls, and that's hard to find in Vancouver as well. So that's something, you know, something specific to Secret Snack Society. Mm-hmm. And it's like a lot more healthier. You know, it got some protein in it, got some salad in it. These are the, some of the options we, you know, want to have like a healthy snack too. Uh, yeah. Now, you come from India. Um, eating late there is uh, very common, especially in, yeah. the, in the major cities. Talk to me a little bit about street culture, food culture there, uh, where you come from compared to Vancouver. 
Oh, it is it is really really you know that's what something I miss when I go out eat in in the evening or late in the night. So I I come from a small city called Patiala, and then we have uh, some spots which are like 24 hours. Uh, we have like the paratha places in Patiala everywhere, which are like 24 hours, and and all the street food is available late night. You know, as you mentioned, like in India or like in general, Indian people eat their dinner very very late. I I myself eat like almost like my dinner like 10 p.m. 11 p.m. <laughs> so you know yeah so from the place where I'm it's like very very common to grab food late night with your friends you know with the kids or with the families so it's something that I sort of miss too so that's another sort of encouragement for us like hey we want to provide something for people who are looking for the same experience we get back home. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I uh, moved to India, uh, and uh, I was always taken aback when you go to a dinner party, and dinner would be 10 or 11 o'clock in the evening. It's just completely different from what, yeah. we, what we do here in the West. And uh, it, I mean, it's part of the culture, It's it's especially with their big cities. The nightlife is so vibrant, uh, especially early in the morning, uh, up until uh, early morning, that having a dinner 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 time being 10 or 11 um, is is quite the, quite the norm. And so is grabbing snacks in the early mornings as well. Well, congratulations to you. Yeah. And just to confirm, the 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 uh, the operation will be called the Secret Snack Society, and it launches yeah. uh, this weekend, upcoming weekend. Yeah. So, all right. So if you're if you're hungry between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., you just uh, look up Secret Snack Society, and this is going to be mostly in the UBC downtown core, right? Yes, that's right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rahul. All the best to you. Look forward to chatting with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. We spoke to Ian Tostenson from the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. We were talking about uh, patios and how successful they've been. Well, the City of Vancouver is going to look at their patio policy um, as it will end. Uh, the The amendments will end, and end uh, on March 31st. So they just basically want to take in and look at what they've been able to do since 2020, of course, uh, when we were told we can't sit inside and eat. Hence, uh, it led to, well, patios uh, being open. And we've been fighting for them over the, over the over many, many years, and it took a global pandemic to get us out and about, and they're very popular. So they're going to look at their patio policy and whether or not to move forward and make it permanent. Well, joining us now to talk about uh, the benefits of expanded patios uh, is Kelly Gordon. He's part owner of Romer's Burger Bar. Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Yes, thanks for the invite. So first of all, just uh, for our audience, give us a sense of what the expansion of the patio program in Vancouver has meant meant, uh, for your uh, burger bar. Well, I think for ourselves and and a lot of, uh, especially the smaller operators, the ability to add uh, additional patio space is a reason uh, a lot of us are open today. Uh, In some cases, it was the difference between being open and being closed. So Ian was saying, and I did ask him that question, like I've had a restaurant of 50, 50 people, uh, 50 seats indoors. He said you could put a patio outside that would be half the size of that restaurant, so another 25 seats. Uh, so you had a significant um, a significant uh, impact on your business based on that. How much, how much space did, were you given? Uh, we were lucky. We have uh, three properties, and we're essentially able to take uh, one property that had zero spaces and, and, and add 30 to 40, Another had 40, make it 80. Another had 60 and make it about uh, 85 or 90. So those seats were a significant value to us during the COVID period. Wow. Uh, I'm curious, did you ask for a patio prior to COVID at all uh, with your business? 
Uh, well, two of them had patios. Uh, we actually okay. have another property in Victoria that has a patio. And in this other case, we had plans. But let me tell you, when, when COVID came, it, it certainly stepped <laughs> up our, uh, our urgency on that. Um, what do we need to do moving forward? I think generally speaking, pe- people are supportive of patios, like the idea of patios. But are, how would you want to improve the patio experience in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland moving forward? Well, I think, uh, number one, this is the first summer in a very, very long time where Vancouver's open to business for international and even Canadian traffic. So the ability to have these patios out there basically says Vancouver's open and, and Fun City can come back. So we're absolutely looking forward to that with a minimum of red tape. Uh, Speaking of red tape, uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle uh, in the midst of all of COVID that some businesses were given, um, you know, uh, basically requirements in regards to what a patio should look like. People felt it was just too much red tape. It was onerous in regards to telling you what kind of patio you could build. I mean, you need some regulations. I I understand that. Uh, Do you worry that it it may get onerous again? Because we have a a tendency as Canadians, certainly Canadian government, I don't care if it's municipal, provincial or federal, to layer on regulations, uh, which in many cases can be a headache uh, for businesses as well. Do you worry about just you know, a patio program that was inflicted on us in a good way because we needed something. Uh, but as the months and years progress, there's a tendency in Canada to, to add greater regulation. Uh, Jess, that, that is so true. I mean, the, the greatest thing that we experienced during the, uh, the patio expansion in COVID was how everybody pulled together and made it happen so fast uh, with the minimum of issues, and uh, I think from most people's perspective, it went very well. I think now we're looking at getting uh, consultants involved, and that means building code, and that means time, and means energy. Everybody's got to be trained at the city. What that means, my fear is uh, we're at February 1st right now, and that first uh, sunny day could come in uh, early March. And even this weekend, our, our patios were pretty darn full. Huh. Even though it's minus two outside, uh, people still want to be outside. It's Vancouver, you know. You know us; we like to be outside. Well, you know what? It may have been cold, but uh, it's the rarest of things in 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 January, which is a, a clear blue sky. So we'll take it. Absolutely, absolutely. We uh, we really did. It was it was a great weekend. Um, I'm I'm curious: Are there cities around North America, around Canada, that you think do the patio thing really well? I uh, I really like. San Diego. Uh, it's one of my favorite cities to visit, and their their gaslight district that you just sort of walk uh, between all these different restaurants and entertainment facilities with a minimum of rules. It just seems to work incredibly well. Hmm. Uh, in regards to parking, and we've had a couple of calls on today's show. Most people calling in have been very supportive, love the idea of patios. They want to see it continue, in fact, expand. Uh, but people, some small business owners have also called to look, I don't want a restaurant, but I have a clothing store. And I worry about valuable parking being taken off the street for my customers because I have a restaurant two doors down. Um, what do you say to that argument that we, we will be losing uh, some parking spaces along the way? That is a legitimate concern, and we do have care for our neighbors um, along the way. Don't have a great solution for that other than uh, the fact that those parking spaces are, are for the greater good of the community, hopefully. And uh, they're viewed as such. 
Do you think, um, and I don't know how you do this, and I, you look at European cities and they, they were obviously constructed and conceived decades ago or centuries ago in many cases. We're a young city in the grand scheme of things, but I always feel you lose something on the patio experience when you have a patio and a busy thoroughfare. Think Kingsway, think even some downtown streets as well. Um, is there any way you think we can sort of cut back on the car in regards to the patio experience? And, I, and I'm, I'm a commuter, <laughs> I drive a vehicle, so it's not a case of war against the vehicle for me, but you lose something along the way, don't you? When you have a decent patio, but you got a four-lane uh, road going through, and, and it, it, it loses something so, somewhere along the way. Well, you, you are right. It, it, it's never as good as looking out the beautiful Fraser River or looking out at English Bay, but uh, it's better than being stuck inside on a 30-plus uh, degree uh, Celsius day. So it, it's not a perfect thing, but if you've ever been to Italy, everybody sort of sits with their, their back against the... Uh, uh, the wall of the restaurant and watches everything go by beautifully. And maybe that's something we can learn from our European friends. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, uh, I'm glad we're having this conversation and I hope moving forward the city of Vancouver, and I think it will uh, do the right thing, move forward and uh, permanent, uh, the uh, patio culture will be permanent. Uh, there may be a few changes here and there, but we hope we don't layer on too much red tape. Kelly, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Thank you, Jazz. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.